Welcome to the People in the Red Vest, a podcast of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC. In each episode, we feature inspiring, surprising, and thought-provoking conversations with people who dedicate their lives to helping others. In this episode, we explore the dire humanitarian situation in Afghanistan with Homa Nader, Manager of Strategic Engagement and Partnerships in the IFRC Country Office in Kabul. Four years of drought, economic sanctions, and the legacy of conflict are just a few of the factors that have left some 34 million Afghans facing extreme hardship. And now, a devastating earthquake has taken thousands of lives in the western part of the country. We spoke with Homa before the earthquake struck about the daily challenges for average Afghans. Joining us from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, she discussed the particularly difficult situation for women and the critical and inspiring work of Red Crescent volunteers in helping people cope. What really brings me comfort and hope, it's the resilience of the people of Afghanistan, and especially the women. Women in Afghanistan are extremely resilient. They've been suffering in silence for decades, really, but are the ones that are coming up with some of the best sort of solutions for the country. So it's really, it's really the women that keep me going. And yeah, I mean, there's just such a wealth of being inspired by, by Afghans and Afghanistan in general, but it's really the women that keep me going. My guest today is Homa Nader, Manager of Strategic Engagement and Partnerships in the IFRC Country Office for Afghanistan, based in Asia-Pacific, traveling between the Asia-Pacific Regional Office in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and Afghanistan. Can you tell us what that role involves and what does strategic engagement and partnerships mean in this context? Thank you so much, Sasha. And I'll just jump into sort of what does strategic engagement and partnerships mean in, in a context like Afghanistan? So the role, it really has many faces. One, of course, it's strengthening partnerships between ourselves, the IFRC, and of course, our partnering national societies and their governments on specific issues affecting people in Afghanistan to lead to sort of sustainable assistance. So that's kind of one part of the job. Then typically it's to mobilize support that's required to kind of respond to the humanitarian crisis effectively. And then thirdly, which is really an important part of the job is providing a shared understanding of the ground realities and the ground truths in Afghanistan that may or may not differ from what we see in sort of national and international media coverage. So for me, this is really what the job around strategic engagement and partnerships entail. So with drought affecting the region well into its fourth year, nearly 34 million Afghans, both in cities and remote areas, are living through extreme hardships. What is the current situation for an average Afghan family? What is their daily life like? What do their daily struggles look like? Can you talk to us about that a little bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the crisis in Afghanistan, it's really fueled by the deterioration of the economic conditions. Of course, the recurring climate crises, fourth year into droughts, the gaps in all sort of essential services. And then that being, you know, amplified by the economic hardships um, and the sanctions in Afghanistan. So approximately 85 of the percent of the population is really living uh, below the poverty line. So that's 34 million Afghans. And what that sort of translates and means is most families that have, you know, one breadwinner in the family are now supporting seven to eight families. So, yeah, I mean, the reality is 34 million Afghans living below the poverty line. What is the IFRC doing to help address those needs? And what's the strategy behind that response so we can ensure that it's effective, given the very complex nature of the situation? So I think, firstly, um, the, the IFRC's primary role in Afghanistan is to support the operations that are led by the national leading actor on the ground, which is the Afghan Red Crescent Society. So everything that the IFRC does in Afghanistan is with and for the national society. So our support, our interventions, it is very much linked to the national society's strategies and areas of work around primary health care, um, support to households that are um, severely impacted by destitution, support to females at risk. And, you know, given the, the nature of kind of the, the dire situation in Afghanistan, the work is being enabled and facilitated by the IFRC in uh, Afghanistan, which we have a role in sort of coordinating between the ARCS, the ICRC, as well as our partnering national societies, some that are integrated in Afghanistan, like the Turkish Red Crescent, Danish Red Cross, um, Qatar Red Crescent, just to name a few, Norwegian Red Cross, um, and, and really planning our support around good and effective coordination to support the Afghan Red Crescent Society to, to push out their mandate in the end to support the people of Afghanistan. As you just mentioned, the Afghan Red Crescent Society, or ARC, is of course critical to the response. And the National Society has branches in each province, and they have a network of more than 24,000 volunteers, I understand. What is their role? What are they doing? And why is their work particularly important now? So the Afghan Red Crescent Society, I mean, the staff and volunteers come from the very, you know, their very own communities made up, you know, from the 34 provinces. They really know best um, what their citizens' needs are. Um, no one knows, you know, the Afghan Red Crescent knows best sort of the knowledge that they've got the trust uh, with the communities accessed uh, amongst the country, which is why they should really be their best placed or, or, or placed at center stage, especially when they're navigating in such complexities. Um, they provide healthcare services. They've got 46 fits clinics um, around in all of Afghanistan, 22 sub health centers, 
70 mobile health teams. They're facilitating treatments for children with congenital heart defects. And they're the only actor in the country that is um, supporting children with CHDs. And at current, the numbers are five children daily are, are passing from this condition. Um, they have welfare centers for war widows and females at risk, and that is becoming more and more of an issue because there's almost 2.5 to 3 million war widows in Afghanistan. So they're able to, to respond tailoring best to the people's needs. The IFRC has just revised its emergency appeal seeking 120 million Swiss francs. What is the state of funding for this appeal at this point? What are the factors that explain this? So at current, it's, as you said, it's been revised last month to 120 million Swiss francs. We stand at 35% covered. Um, but we're seeing a sharp decline in, in sort of resources coming into Afghanistan. And there's several reasons for that. Um, of course, there's the challenge of competing crises around the world. There's also the political limitations um, in Afghanistan, which is making it more difficult for partners and the, the international community to continue supporting the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. So what we can really do here is just continue to provide sort of the ground realities um, um, to the sort of donor communities so that they can best position to their ministers to continue the support in Afghanistan. But yeah, there is certainly a sharp decline and we see it even with the UN appeal um, where they're struggling really to bring support into the appeal and recently published um, a report on sort of critical gaps um, where they're really just just putting uh, emphasis on on just the critical gaps that they may or may not be able to cover in the coming year. So as as you just uh, said, Homa, with so many crises and conflicts going on in the world right now, it seems that Afghanistan has fallen off the radar somewhat. What is your impression? Is this true? And what can be done about it? Certainly. I mean, I think, um, Sasha, you have the right impression. And we, the IFRC in Afghanistan and the ARCS, we engage with sort of the diplomatic embassies every two months. And we're seeing that slowly, slowly, there is this deterioration where they're struggling to keep um, Afghanistan highlighted and the crisis highlighted to their public. Um, this is where I think both the IFRC and ARCS need to continue heavily around their humanitarian diplomacy efforts in advocating for the rights of you know, the vulnerable people um, that they're trying to support during this crisis and this time of hardship. So it's really to continue to strengthen the opportunities that we have to engage with the diplomatic missions and have an exchange around sort of the dialogue to foster a better understanding of what's happening in Afghanistan. So I think these two-month missions are, are great because we're gaining a lot of trust with the, the international community and our partners and trying to give them, because they're outposted now in Doha and not based in Kabul, trying to give them as much as we can on sort of the ground realities so that they can 
positioned the crisis back home in their capitals and whatnot. The humanitarian work is also very closely related to development. And we know we can't address the humanitarian situation without investing in longer-term development solutions or addressing the economic crisis. Can this be done in the current environment in Afghanistan? What are some of the obstacles uh, to working on these long-term solutions? In Afghanistan, we're talking about a country that is deeply scarred from decades of conflict. You've said it, economic hardships, chronic pre-existing needs, high cases of substance abuse we're seeing now, which is almost at 4 million people. There's also um, one in two Afghans are suffering from some level of a psychological sort of disorder or distress, mainly women. And this is even prior to the changes that we saw in the government. So prior to 2021, most of the, the, the focus on, on operating as humanitarian actors in Afghanistan needs to look at tackling the root causes of issues and the root causes of people's vulnerabilities, which of course is not just humanitarian um, handouts, sorry to say it this way, but there has to be really heavy linkages to, to development and allowing for Afghans to be able to be on their own feet and self-sustaining at some point. I think it can absolutely be done. I think that both uh, the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement and the UN really need to put their heads together to sort of look at how we can revamp our programming where there is more development programs being pushed. But the reality is that um, development financing has just come to a halt. So the financing and support that we're getting from most governments is purely humanitarian. But I mean, I think that we can put our heads together in the international community to see how we can uh, intervene and support through humanitarian activities with some level of a link to development programs. Women make up a relatively small percentage of the volunteers and staff of the Afghan Red Crescent Society, and yet they are crucial to delivering services to vulnerable groups, especially women and girls. Can you explain why this is so, so important, particularly now? I mean, let me just kind of start by saying that there are misconceptions about women in Afghanistan. They're strong they're resilient, they're extremely proud. Um, they're the ones that hold, up, hold families of up to 15 members together. They're the fabric, really the, the very fabric of communities in Afghanistan. They're extremely bright and smart because they've had to survive and they know what it's like to suffer in silence. And um, luckily, ARCS has been able to continue their work and services for women. Um, their health activities continue to, to go on. So 
we are amongst the four to five organizations in the country that are exempt um, from some of the sort of bans and edicts. And another, maybe a little bit more exciting news, the ARCS, they've embarked um, on a new activity where they're establishing sort of um, a community-based volunteer programs where in each one of the villages in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, you have 54,000 villages within the 34 provinces. And a minimum standard is they want three volunteers for each one of these villages, of which the minimum is that there has to be one female volunteer. So I think that this is, um, could be quite a big game changer uh, for the situation with ARCS and in Afghanistan. That is good news, yes. Women are the main clients also of the primary health services supported through the Afghan Red Crescent Society. And female medical staff make these services possible, right? As doctors, nurses, midwives, outreach workers, they also lead the vocational training and care and support for destitute women in the so-called marathon centers across the country. Yet opportunities for women to study and take on these roles have been severely restricted. What impact is this having or could it have in the future? This will not only result in sort of severe gaps and a decline in the overall Afghan economy, but it will also lead to a generational gap of female-led professions. And as you've said, um, mainly in, in the health sector. So I don't think we're prepared to sort of see what that will translate to, but certainly um, there will be some level of a, of a big generational gap in female-led professions in Afghanistan. You mentioned earlier that we are one of the few organizations that have been exempt from the edict. How have the restrictions on women's activities impacted IFRC operations in Afghanistan? I think we've been lucky um, in the IFRC, in the ICRC, and within the ARCS to continue our activities. But we're seeing that the edicts are predominantly um, affecting our, our UN partners, of course, uh, local NGOs on the ground. Of course, we're quite privileged to be exempt from this, and it's allowing women to continue their work. Although now, um, if we have women sort of going to the field to work, they need to be accompanied by a guardian. So there are these still these kind of small challenges, but it cannot really sustain um, when you have the rest of our partners on the ground who are impacted by these edicts. And it will eventually bring on a very big burden onto the Red Cross Red Crescent movement and mainly the ARCS uh, to, to sort of cover the gaps um, on services that are related to women. Can you tell us what your personal experience has been like working as a woman for the IFRC in Kabul? It's been really a privilege um, being able to work in Afghanistan in these conditions. I would say privilege because I've been quite lucky, um, been in a lucky sort of position where I can work closely with the ARCS 
um, of course, going in there with a lot of humility and understanding of sort of the overall political landscape and context. But my role really, um, as I, I've not been an Afghan that has lived and gone through what has happened in Afghanistan, is to be kind of a voice and a messenger for the needs of people and the sufferings that women are experiencing in Afghanistan. So in that way, being a messenger has been a real privilege. One thing that we actually haven't mentioned is that one of the reasons why it perhaps really works for you to work with the locals is because you are of Afghan origin and speak uh, Dari, um, so you can communicate with uh, the volunteers of the Afghan Red Crescent Society as well as the uh, affected populations. What drew you to wanting to work specifically for our operation in Afghanistan? Is it your background? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly linked to my background. Um, I mean, I, was, I grew up as a bridge kid. My parents were really victims and family were victims of the Cold Wars that brought them as refugees out west. And Afghanistan has always been very familiar for me. Um, it's always really been home, although I've had, you know, a fantastic uh, home in the States. But it's just, yeah, as I said, it's always been familiar for me. And this experience, it's really enabled me to sort of be closer to home under, of course, the, the Red Cross, Red Crescent umbrella. So despite all the challenges, what have been some of the more rewarding experiences you've had since you started your role working in Afghanistan? I, mean, I think this goes back to just, just playing this role as messenger and again, feeling familiar that this is my home and being able to take what I've learned uh, within my career, the stories that I've been told at home, grandmother, mother of Afghanistan, and then being able to actually go into the country and sort of serve. It's like life has just been kind of a full circle. So overall, um, extremely, extremely rewarding for me to have been able to go back and continue to work. As I think I mentioned at the beginning, you are actually based in our regional office in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and you travel often uh, to Afghanistan. So how do you actually juggle this with your life in Malaysia, where you also have two children waiting for you? Yeah, so this has been obviously extremely difficult and very much a, a juggling act. Um, so every two months, I'm expected uh, to be back either in Afghanistan or kind of support with the rounds of discussions with the diplomatic community based in Doha. When I'm in Afghanistan or away from Iman and Zaire, my children, I'm always having this sort of anxiety of, are they okay? I hope they'll forgive me one day and whatever, this 
you know, the typical sort of mom guilt. And then when I'm back here in, in Kuala Lumpur and with the children, there's this guilt of, I wonder how the operations are going in Afghanistan. Am I doing enough being outposted in Kuala Lumpur in my role and the way that I'm contributing? So it's certainly been a juggling act. And I think that's the case for all of us sort of humanitarians in this sector. We've made that choice. The guilt is real. Um, I guess we have to be really strong in our relationships to keep it going. So not only me, but I would say that this is the case for most families um, who are working in this sector. And relationship building is part of what you do, right? And several of your recent jobs for the IFRC and before that at UNICEF involved partnerships. So what is the role of relationship building and partnerships in the humanitarian response? Why is it so important? It's important because partnerships, it's about learning, it's about exchanging, it's about continuing the dialogue in support of people who need our support. Um, and without this sort of critical role of being able to exchange better ourselves and understand the realities that, that people are facing in, in, around issues of hardship, um, we wouldn't really be able to, to move forward on this work. So, yeah, I mean, partnerships is critical to continue the conversation and to be sure that, um, you know, we're, we're giving, um, we're, we're allowing people to understand what's really happening and, of course, coming up with, with solutions that work or durable solutions for the people that we're supporting in the end. Of course, there are many challenges of working in partnerships, uh, right? And at, at some time in the past, there were many potential partner organizations in Afghanistan. Now, perhaps there are too few. We've talked about that already. But what's your take on the challenges uh, that that come up with that situation? No, absolutely. I think, um, of course, in, in the context of Afghanistan, you now only have very few, I mean, a handful of, of governments that are still present, um, Japan, Turkey, some of the neighboring countries. And then you have predominantly have most of um, our partners uh, sitting between Doha and Islamabad, some in their capitals. So this obviously comes with a range of challenges and makes, I think, our job within the realm of like strategic engagement partnerships much more difficult because it's this constant trying to triangulate the right information um, and this constant of supporting diplomats in their engagements with their ministers um, to show that there is, you know, um, that they're doing proper positioning on Afghanistan, that they're able to convince, um, uh, convince favorable policies and decisions for financing for Afghanistan. So it does come with its set of challenges. And, and I'm wondering how long could this actually really go on? Um, there may be a, a, a need of sort of renewed ways um, of working. 
but yeah it certainly comes with with a lot of challenges within this context Beyond Afghanistan, in your opinion, what are some of the challenges facing women working in the humanitarian field? Is there anything humanitarian organizations should be doing to be more inclusive or empowering for women at all levels? Absolutely. I mean, one thing is we look at the situation of women in Afghanistan, but we don't need to really go far out of Afghanistan to realize that even uh, within the Western societies that we're part of, within this sector, there still isn't equal opportunities for women. Um, I think it's, it's, it's still sort of a long battle for women um, to be being able to be put in sort of leadership positions within the humanitarian sector and sometimes we're even used as sort of tokens or part of a numbers game to be put on panels um, so that we show that women are more included in part of sort of the international forums and, and, and important dialogues in our sector. But I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done for women to really be included as an equal partner within the, the full humanitarian sector, wherever that may be. You have long been involved in issues that affect the Afghan community and culture in places where you've lived. What are some of the issues affecting Afghan communities abroad, so outside of Afghanistan? Yeah, um, so in 2010, uh, I was in AmeriCorps for a year um, at the Arab uh, Cultural and Community Center in San Francisco, California. And, you know, like my parents, and again, Afghans who are victims of the Cold War and had to resettle out west from the 70s onward, they didn't have an understanding of sort of their basic rights within a state, within a country, within a community. So I took this role as an AmeriCorps to sort of help the Afghan diaspora communities understand what their basic rights were, their right to vote, their right to, you know, healthcare, and to provide that understanding. Um, at the same time, uh, or just a bit before in 2009 and the beginning of 2010, I was a volunteer for the Human Cost of War Project. And my role was um, supporting the national security attorneys to address the situation of civilian casualties in Afghanistan and Iraq. And what that meant was I was reviewing thousands of incident records and reports um, I had boxes of records in my room of civilian casualties, and it was a very difficult time for me because I was reading thousands of reports of incidents that were gathered from Afghanistan police departments and in Iraq, and you saw, you know, families writing in broken English the, the, the situation of losing a loved one. And eventually these records were utilized to sort of suggest changes in legislation in the United States. So, yeah, I've always been sort of more or less involved in, in 
uh, work that had to do with either the Afghan diaspora community or Afghans in Afghanistan. It's been almost 15 years since I was in Afghanistan, where I filmed and produced several stories about life in Kabul and some other parts of the country. I'm a tea drinker, and my favorite memory is the warm welcome and tea time with my young translator's family. What I remember the most is the really wonderful, warm atmosphere in their home. That's my view of Afghanistan. That's what I remember. It's not what I see on TV. In your view, what are some of the biggest misunderstandings about Afghan culture and community? Yeah, I mean, first of all, that's very lovely to hear, Sasha, because Afghan culture is really about um, hospitality. There isn't a single Afghan home in Afghanistan and even in, in diaspora where they don't have an individual room to host people. Um, misconceptions, I mean, I think there are several misconceptions. Um, Afghans, Afghanistan is a 5,000 year old civilization. Um, you have people of various backgrounds People that, you know, often I hear people saying, well, you don't look Afghan. There's so many languages. Um, when, you, when you go from province to province, um, there's different um, styles in terms of the clothing worn. There's different sounds to the music when you jump from one province to province. So me I'm growing up in the States and sort of post 9-11, uh, there was a lot of misconceptions and a lot of sort of profiling going around um, then. But I mean, you name it, there was a lot of misconceptions. So who have been your biggest role models growing up and throughout your life? Definitely one role model um, that I've had a very strong role model who's sort of been through it with me um, from, you know, I go to her for career advice. I go to her constantly for personal advice um, is Fatima Gelani. She's also from our very own Red Cross, Red Crescent family. So she served uh, as the president of the Afghan Red Crescent Society from 2005 for approximately 11 years. And she's really dedicated her life to giving a voice to women and people, vulnerable people and people that have needed support uh, in Afghanistan. And she's brought their voices into sort of the international foras and spheres, pushing kind of the agenda that Afghans themselves need to bring solutions to tackle issues in Afghanistan. So she's definitely been um, someone that's been a, a big role model for me in my life. Another is my grandmother, who I think she she's really the one who has kept sort of Afghanistan alive in our homes in the States. 
And, you know, she would dedicate her weekends on telling us more about the golden days in Afghanistan and what it was like for her growing up in Afghanistan. So certainly the two have been quite influential in my life. Is there a story that you remember from that your grandmother told you? Oh, wow. I mean, there's been several stories, but I think one that's really stuck is a lot of the stories around sort of when the spring would come around and the family sort of gathering in Jalalabad. And I was able to sort of, she's a very good storyteller. So she kind of starts from, you know, what it was like preparing for sort of the picnics in Jalalabad, the drive to Jalalabad, and she's constantly, um, you know, she brings up sort of landmarks and the streets that she was driving in. And for me, you know, two years ago, as I was just driving between the IFRC residents to the ARCS offices, some of these streets and landmarks were already familiar. So, I find that she would give all of these details so that, because she knew, she was wise, she knew that one day, you know, her grandchildren would go back to Afghanistan and would be able to sort of make those connections to her stories. That sounds really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. And with all that's going on in the world and in Afghanistan, at the end of the day, who or what inspires you today? What brings you comfort and hope? What really brings me comfort and hope, it's the resilience of the people of Afghanistan and especially the women. So the women that I'm working with within the IFRC, within the ARCS, and I said this earlier that women in Afghanistan are extremely resilient. They've been suffering in silence for decades, really. Um, but are the ones that are coming up with some of the best sort of solutions for the country. Um, so it's really, it's really the women that keep me going. And I always try to keep a level of optimism. And I'm just investing always on that little window that in time, or if I'm seeing something that is is going maybe even a little bit in the right direction in Afghanistan, I try to invest my efforts into that. So, yeah, I mean, there's just such a wealth of being inspired by, by Afghans in Afghanistan in general, but it's really the women that keep me going. In closing, the name of the podcast is The People in the Red Vest. What does the Red Vest mean to you? The red vest, for me, really, it's hope. Um, and in Dari, we say omed. And it, it, when you see somebody with a red vest um, in a context like Afghanistan, you know that you have someone there willing to support you. And... I think the best way to say it is that it just it's a really big, strong uh, indication of hope that we're there. We're there for each other um, during times that uh, are difficult and it can happen to any one of us. So that's what the Red Vest sort of 
means for me and I think what it means for most. Thank you so much, Homa, for sharing your experiences and insights into the Afghan culture. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And next time we do it over tea. Thank you so much, Sasha. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to People in the Red Vest, a podcast of inspiring stories as told by people from the IFRC. This podcast was produced by Malcolm Lucard, Damien Naylor, and myself. Promotion and marketing by Maxime Bouchard, Irina Ruano, and Melis Figanmeshe. Graphic design by Valentina Shapiro, and web support from Chris O'Croix and Patrick Tai. For more inspiring stories, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. 